Welcome to Dialogue Minnesota, conversations about the issues that matter to you. I'm your host, Jim Dubois. Twenty Democratic presidential candidates squared off in two debates late last month in Miami. This week, a look at how the contenders fared during the forum and what will likely be the key issues in the Democratic primary campaign. We'll also discuss Minnesota's most recent legislative session and the controversy surrounding 5th District Democratic Congresswoman Ilhan Omar. University of Minnesota Associate Professor of Political Science Catherine Pearson joins us by phone. Catherine, welcome back to Dialogue Minnesota. Thanks, Jim. Great to be with you. There are 25 Democrats running for president in 2020. 20 of them made it to the first round of debates split into two nights. Did a clear winner emerge from either night? Well, the second night was probably the more memorable of the two. And it was memorable for several reasons. But among the reasons were that Senator Kamala Harris really went after former Vice President Joe Biden on his record of working with former Democratic senators who were in favor of segregation for his record on busing. She also disagreed with the Obama administration's policies on immigration. And so in one of the most intense and replayed moments of the night, Harris and Biden sort of really showed two different sides of their campaigns, policy issues, and personalities. And I think much to everyone's surprise, former Vice President Biden didn't really seem quite prepared to answer Senator Harris's questions of them. Which candidates do you think made a strong showing? I think several candidates made strong showing. On the first night, Senator Elizabeth Warren was quite consistent in the fact that she's regarded as someone with a lot of policy expertise, with attention to details, and with a strong message about inequality in America. And so she spoke often on those themes and was one of the most frequent speakers of the night and received a lot of high marks for her debate performance. On the first night, former Secretary Castro also really distinguished himself when talking about immigration. Those clips have been replayed many times as well, and I think a lot of Democrats started looking up more information about him. He was someone who hadn't received a lot of traction in the polls and had not been as well-known before the debates as perhaps he was after the debates. Minnesota Senator Amy Klobuchar on the first night had a solid performance, and given that former Vice President Joe Biden didn't do as well as anticipated on the second night, I think the fact that she really emphasized her more moderate positions gives her potentially room in sort of the lane that former Vice President Biden now occupies, which is sort of the more moderate candidate and a more incremental policymaker. On night two, certainly Senator Kamala Harris emerged as a very strong candidate, as did Pete Buttigieg and some other candidates as well. Bernie Sanders had a lot to say, a lot to talk about, but he perhaps didn't do quite as well as some would have anticipated that he would do, given his status as second in the polls going into that. Were there any candidates who you feel performed particularly poorly? Well, former Vice President Joe Biden. All eyes were on him. He was the front runner in the polls. And it is notable that actually he is still doing well in the polls after the debate, although his numbers did take quite a hit. He just seemed unprepared for some of the attacks that came at him. And frankly, he should have been anticipating those attacks. He's the front runner. He has a long record. And he should have been better prepared to defend some of his previous policy positions. Do we know yet how the debates affected polling numbers? Did any candidates see a bump or did some of them uh, see a decline in their polling? So 
Senator Harris, I think, has seen the biggest bump. And former Vice President Biden has seen the biggest decline. That said, even in the days after the debate, when the media have been playing some of the more damaging clips to Biden, he still narrowly uh, remains the frontrunner. Senator Warren also has experienced uh, a little bump as well. From your perspective as a political scientist, what did you think of the debates? Was having two separate events with 10 candidates appearing at a time a good idea for the party? Well, it was a good idea from the perspective that the Democratic Party doesn't want to be accused of playing favorites. Had they chosen a format where, say, only the top 10 or the top five in the polls were on stage, I think they justifiably could have been accused of playing favorites and not giving some of the other lesser-known candidates a chance. On the other hand, it was hard for some of the candidates to get their message across, and at times it didn't really seem so much like a debate as candidates just sort of making policy statements. I did notice, and I think that this has sort of been consistent in the commentary after the debate, is that the candidates were fairly focused on their policy positions. Certainly at times there were attacks on President Trump as candidates were practicing their themes should they make it to the general in the fall of 2020. But in general, the candidates really used their time to introduce themselves to voters and explain their policy positions on issues and why they're different from other Democratic candidates in addition to the president. Do you think the debates were able to give viewers a good sense of what the candidates stood for? And uh, do you think with that many people on stage, it was very difficult for policy ideas to be articulated in a way where a candidate would have time to flesh them out fully? Well, the time limits were problematic in terms of candidates being able to fully explain themselves. But that said, particularly during the first half of each debate, the candidates did have sort of good opportunities to really lay out their own policy positions and how they differed from their opponents. And so given the format, I think it was impressive just how much voters learned about their varying policy positions. Because even though they all sort of agree on some fundamental issues, there are some differences, whether the differences are on health care, immigration, free college, higher education. There are differences between the candidates, and those who are paying close attention really could begin to flesh out some of those differences between the candidates. We're talking with Katherine Pearson. She's an associate professor of political science at the University of Minnesota. Why do you think there is such a large field of candidates for the Democratic nomination? I think two reasons. Oh, one is that President Trump is very unpopular among Democrats, and many Democrats are, frankly, enthusiastic about the potential opportunity to take him on. Um, And many Democrats, current and former senators, a vice president, governors, secretaries, members of the House, you know, they think that they potentially have sort of the winning combination of policy positions, electability, and sort of enthusiasm that could generate a crowd. The other reason that I think there are so many candidates is in 2019, social media gives candidates opportunities to campaign, present themselves, run for president at a lesser cost than running for president would sort of entail in the past. Because it's not as costly to have a campaign based around Twitter and Facebook um, and other social media, I think more candidates see the opportunity to do this. 
I think the media are also doing a better job of covering all the candidates more equally than they did, say, four years ago, especially during the Republican nominating contest, when then-candidate Donald Trump received by far the most coverage among the Republican candidates vying for the nomination. Let's talk about some of the major issues that emerged from the debate, starting with a big one for the Democrats, health care. It's an issue that helped the party take back the House in 2018. What is the policy debate among the candidates surrounding health care? Well, the candidates really differ on whether or not we should move to a Medicare for all system. And what's interesting about this is that really up until Recently, Democrats were sort of spending most of their energy defending Obamacare. You know, Obamacare, if you separate out various components of Obamacare, actually polls quite well among the general public. And so the debate is no longer sort of how to improve Obamacare, but whether or not we should move away from private insurance, which actually polls very well, uh, even among Democrats, and move to a Medicare for all or a public system. So the moderators were sure to sort of get the candidates on record as to whether or not they support ending private insurance. And so that's one of the key debates between the Democrats. Immigration was obviously a big issue for candidate Trump and continues for President Trump. But the separation of children from their parents and the conditions under which migrants are being held is very controversial. How do the Democratic candidates view the issue of immigration? large, the Democratic candidates, while there are some differences between them about criminalization, the Democrats here are really positioning the Democratic Party as in opposition to President Trump and the Republican Party. It's certainly uh, evoking many of the tragic stories that we're learning about children at the border and various situations that families are in, being separated, the recent death of a father and daughter. And so I think Democrats on this particular issue, while O'Rourke and Castro, both from Texas, discussed key differences between them, more of the focus here was on the outrage at the Trump administration's policies coming from Democrats. This will be an issue that persists throughout the nominating contest and into the general election. But I think one of the keys here is that Democrats are just trying to distinguish the party from President Trump and his actions. How do issues such as health care and immigration uh, rank in importance to Democratic primary voters? Is this something the potential Democratic primary voter is especially focused on? Yes, they are important issues. The economy is another important issue. Climate change is another important issue. And primary voters certainly care about candidate issue positions. But it's not all that primary voters care about. Primary voters care about electability. Primary voters care about sort of values, likability, ideology. So primary voters, they do care about issues, but they tend to sort of see the issues that their favorite candidates support or oppose is sort of secondary to their overall evaluations of those candidates. In other words, if someone has a favorite candidate, they are more likely to therefore then think that the policies that that favorite candidate supports are the best policies. Now, that said, the ideological differences between some of the candidates and the approaches, sort of a structural overhaul versus incrementalism, those issues do factor into how various voters see candidates. Some voters are looking for candidates who are ideologically more moderate, favor incremental policy change, and some voters are looking for candidates that really want a structural overhaul and favor more radical change and are more liberal. 
When matched against President Trump, Joe Biden polls higher than any other Democrat in the race, although his numbers are slipping. Is there a disconnect between the primary voters and the general electorate? Well, it's very early on in the process. Once Election Day rolls around in the fall of 2020, just like most recent elections, I think a fair prediction would be that 9 out of 10 Democrats will vote for the Democratic candidate, whoever he or she is, and 9 out of 10 Republicans will vote for President Trump. The question is, will the bases of each party be mobilized, and what will swing voters do? 2020 will be a competitive election. We are a narrowly divided country with few swing states. And so whoever the Democratic nominee is, it is certain to be a competitive election. Right now, former Vice President Joe Biden benefits from the fact that he was vice president for eight years. And he has a lot of name recognition and is generally viewed as a, a likable person connected to the Obama administration, which is still you know, quite popular in the eyes of Democrats. And so he benefits from this name recognition, his long career in public service. But if another Democrat were to get the nomination, that candidate would, of course, also become well-known to voters. So it's unclear whether or not Biden would still have that edge. Which of the Democratic presidential candidates have raised the most money so far? Well, you know, we're just finding out new dollars from the quarter that ended on June 30th. And so all those numbers are not out yet, but certainly the front runners in the polls are also doing very well financially. That includes Biden, that includes Harris, that includes Warren, that includes Sanders, and that also includes Pete Buttigieg, the mayor of South Bend, Indiana, um, who had a strong debate performance, although his poll numbers did not increase dramatically after his performance. He has reported his earnings as of June 30th, and he has raised quite a bit of money. How much of an indicator is fundraising on the likelihood of a particular candidate winning the party's nomination? Fundraising is important, but past elections show us that it is not the most important factor. It is important, but the most important factor has traditionally been endorsements from one's party's elected officials. So, for example, endorsements from other Democratic governors and senators and members of the House and state legislators and key interest groups. Those endorsements really signal support behind candidates and the sense that elites think that this candidate is electable for the party. Now, this did not hold for Republicans in 2016. President Trump did not receive the most endorsements from other Republicans, but yet he went on to win the nomination process quite handily. And so it remains to be seen whether or not endorsements will predict the Democratic nominee in 2020. But certainly historically, in the post-McGovern-Fraser era since 1972, endorsements from party elites and key groups have really been the best indicator of who the nominee will be. For a Democrat to win the White House in 2020, which voters will he or she need to get to the polls or win back for the party, folks who might have voted Republican in 2016? Well, 2020 is an election where if Democrats are going to win, they will both need to really motivate the base to come out and vote so that turnout is high, as it was in 2018, which was a great year for Democrats. But then they will also need to win over swing voters in swing states. So in critical states like Michigan, Ohio, Pennsylvania, Wisconsin. In those states, white voters, particularly white men without college degrees, were the groups that were most likely to switch from voting for Obama in 2008 or 2012 to vote for Trump in 2016. And so those are key groups that Democrats will try to win back, but 
By the same token, Democrats also need to mobilize the base. You can't do just one of those two things and expect to win for Democrats. Again, 2020 will be a very close election, no matter who the nominee is. If the Democratic Party nominee ends up a progressive candidate, someone like Bernie Sanders or Elizabeth Warren, how will that sit with the party's more moderate voters? Well, I think it depends on how the campaign unfolds. That is a potential danger for Democrats that if the candidate is seen as being very liberal, that it will have the potential to turn off some more moderate voters or independent voters. On the other hand, it really depends how the campaign unfolds. And a more liberal candidate also has the potential to really energize the Democratic base in a way that some of the more moderate candidates don't. And so it depends on sort of how the campaign unfolds, the contrast between the nominee and President Trump, and then also sort of how strong the campaign is more generally. You know, how many organizers there are in key states, the get-out-the-vote drive, the visit, and the appeal of the candidates that grow over the course of the campaign. What do you think is the state of moderate centrist politics in this country at the present time? Well, most voters identify pretty strongly with one of the two parties. And most voters who are partisan sort of tend to prefer candidates who are to the left for Democrats and to the right for Republicans of center. But that's not to say that there aren't still moderate voters left. There are. Moderate voters just don't have as many moderate choices as they've had in the past because overall the electorate has veered more toward one of the two sort of extremes, the left or the right. Is there a generational divide in the Democratic Party right now? And the reason I ask that question is, if there is one, it certainly came to light during the second of the two debates when U.S. Representative uh, Eric Swalwell from California said that when he was six years old, he heard presidential candidate Joe Biden address the California Democratic Convention. And Biden said, quote, it's time to pass the torch to a new generation of Americans, close quote. Is this becoming a real issue? Is there a part of the Democratic Party now dominated by younger people who see candidates such as Biden and even uh, Bernie Sanders, who has been a favorite of a lot of young progressives? Are, are they now being seen as perhaps uh, too old and too out of touch with the current Democratic Party? Well, younger voters among Democrats do tend to be more liberal. Younger voters overall tend to be more Democratic than other generations. They also tend to turn out at lower rates. But younger voters within the Democratic electorate do prefer liberal candidates to a greater extent than do other age cohorts. So this really doesn't hurt a candidate like Bernie Sanders with younger voters because he is viewed as quite liberal. His proposals about sort of you know, free college and ending student debt are quite popular among younger voters. But in general, the idea of generational change, absent sort of an attachment to any candidate, does pull well with Democratic voters in the sense that Democratic voters, sort of all of equal, are looking for sort of a new generation and a younger candidate. But sort of how this plays out with specific candidates, I think, is more determined by their policy positions and their sort of ideology and their key priorities. So this perhaps hurts someone like Joe Biden more than it might someone like Bernie Sanders, although going into the debate, Biden was polling very well with every group, including younger voters. We're talking with Katherine Pearson. She's an associate professor of political science at the University of Minnesota. Do you see any echoes, perhaps, of the 1968 
Democratic presidential campaign. And in that, I mean the fact that the party ended up nominating uh, Hubert Humphrey for president. And there were a number of younger challengers, including uh, uh, Eugene McCarthy, including Robert F. Kennedy. Did we see a lot of younger people, Democrats, stay at home and not vote in 1968 because they viewed Humphrey uh, as perhaps even an equal evil with Richard Nixon? I think we can draw some parallels, but they're pretty limited. And in part, that is because the nomination process was so different in 1968. Humphrey was the nominee without winning a single primary or caucus. And in 2020, the Democratic nominee, whoever he or she is, will be the candidate that won the most delegates in primaries and caucuses. And so that's just a huge difference between the system today and the system that nominated candidates in 1968. I mean, in 1968, it literally was a backroom deal in a smoke-filled room, whereas in 2020, the delegates will be chosen by voters in primaries and caucuses. And so there could be some disenfranchisement from voters whose candidate does not win. But given the fact that President Trump is so unpopular among Democrats, I expect that the convention, the Democratic convention, will be a time of unity where Democrats are really trying to come together behind the eventual nominee. Well, turning our attention now to Minnesota politics, our state has the only divided legislature in the country. How did the two sides get along this past legislative session, and what has Governor Tim Walz been able to accomplish given that divided legislature? Well, I think the effects of divided government were quite clear. In 2019 in America, the two parties nationally and in Minnesota are pretty far apart. And so Governor Walz, sort of despite coming in with good intentions to work with Republicans and Republicans, you know, being more than willing to meet with Governor Walz, sort of despite many overtures and many efforts, I think that they saw that it's hard. In 2019, with polarized parties, you know, both parties looking toward their own electoral fortunes in the next election and trying to win the battle of public opinion, and the parties had some real policy differences between them. So I think that Governor Walz could point to some wins on education funding, which were one of his priorities. I mean, not as big of a win, perhaps, as he would have liked, but increased funding for education. And Republicans could point to a victory, no gas tax, sort of defeating some of Governor Walz's priorities that they were particularly unhappy with. And so it was not a legislative session that produced a great record of accomplishment. On the other hand, we didn't see a government shutdown. And, you know, the two parties managed to come together to get what they needed to do done, for the most part. You know, there were some things that they seemed to have a bipartisan consensus on, like insulin, that they ultimately did not pass. There are a number of allegations swirling around U.S. Representative Ilhan Omar. Some of them have to do with uh, campaign finance violations. Others uh, are unproven, but yet uh, there are rumors circulating about uh, the representative. One state lawmaker or a Republican has called for an ethics probe of Congresswoman Omar. Is this uh, particular issue here politically motivated, or are there some real concerns circulating about U.S. Representative Ilhan Omar? I think that the answer is probably both. You know, this is coming from a Republican legislator who is sort of no friend of the Democratic Party or of Congresswoman Ilhan Omar's. On the other hand, you know, she has not been willing to answer all questions that have been posed to her about some of these issues. And so I think that this issue is likely to persist. I think the real question is, to what end? 
you know, will there be an ethics investigation? I don't know the answer to that. You know, will there be any next steps in this investigation? I think at this point that's unclear, and it's also therefore unclear uh, to what extent this issue will be politically damaging. Congresswoman Omar won resoundingly in 2018. She represents a liberal district. And so, you know, the way she would be defeated is through a primary challenge. And as of yet, there is not a primary challenger that has emerged that could sort of credibly take her on. And so I think, you know, that is the real question. Will there be, you know, additional allegations, additional investigations that sort of prompt a serious primary challenger or Will this issue, you know, really dissipate within the next couple of months? And I think it's just too soon to say. Minnesota's Republican members of the U.S. House serve many of the state's most rural and agricultural districts. We should also mention that uh, Democrat Colin Peterson serves a large portion of the state's prime agricultural area as well. How have these representatives reacted to President Trump's trade wars with China in particular, the impact they've had on the soybean trade, and his general calls for tariffs? What have our representatives done in reaction to uh, President Trump's trade wars? Well, the reaction has been mixed, and it's been mixed across the country because it's a complicated issue. On the one hand, all politics is local, and so the extent to which this has hurt local industry and agriculture. I mean, I think you're seeing some Republicans sort of speak out and Democrats certainly speaking out against what President Trump has been doing. On the other hand, you do see, you know, some legislators and certainly some voters who are strong Republicans nonetheless defend President Trump, even if it seems that on the economic side, the issue is actually hurting them. Catherine Pearson is an associate professor of political science at the University of Minnesota. Catherine, thanks for joining us on Dialogue Minnesota. My pleasure, Jim. Thank you. Dialogue Minnesota. Conversations about the issues that matter to you. A task force at the University of Minnesota recommended earlier this year that several buildings on campus should be renamed because of allegations of racial bias and anti-Semitism on the part of the building's namesakes. The university's Board of Regents rejected the task force recommendation, citing what some regents claimed was faulty research. This fall, the university's history department is offering a course titled Prejudice and Protest at the U of M that will explore racial, ethnic, and religious bias throughout the history of the institution. We'll learn more about the effort to confront injustices in the university's past on the next Dialogue Minnesota. Be sure to visit us online at DialogueMinnesota.com. Like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter. I'm Jim Dubois. Thanks for listening. See you next time.